Hello, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to film critic and author Walter Chaw. This is not a typical episode of this podcast. Normally, as you probably know, we talk to musicians. And in 2022, we've specifically been talking about fusion, which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we're going to get back to that subject in our next episode when I have an interview with saxophonist Dave Liebman, who played with Miles Davis in the early 70s and also had his own band, Lookout Farm, which was a very interesting fusion act. But on this episode, we're taking a sharp left turn and talking about movies, and specifically the movies of Walter Hill. Walter Chaw is a critic I read fairly often at the site Film Freak Central. He writes for lots of other places too, but that's where I see his work the most. And a few months ago, I saw that he had a book coming out all about the work of director Walter Hill. It's called A Walter Hill Film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill, and it's out now. You can get it from mzs.press. If you're not familiar with his name, Walter Hill has directed about two dozen movies, including Hard Times, The Driver, The Warriors, Southern Comfort, 48 Hours, Extreme Prejudice, Streets of Fire. He directed the pilot episode of Deadwood. He wrote at least portions of the first three Alien movies. He's done a ton of unbelievable work. He has a new movie out this year called Dead for a Dollar. Uh, most of his movies are very violent, in an action rather than a horror way, but they're also a lot more thoughtful and progressive than you might expect them to be. There's a tremendous amount going on in them under the surface in terms of interrogation of masculinity, interrogation of the violence of American culture, interrogation of race and sex and even capitalism but it's all couched in these really pulpy, violent, action-packed stories that sometimes start out feeling like morality plays, but then go sharply sideways. I would compare Walter Hill to directors like Sam Fuller or William Friedkin or Michael Mann, maybe even Paul Schrader, all of whose work I love, but his track record is better than any of them. I own more Walter Hill movies on DVD or Blu-ray than movies by any of those other guys. So the minute I heard about this book, I knew I had to read it. And once I read it, I knew I wanted to talk to its author. So I did. And we had a really great conversation over this past weekend. And that's what you're going to hear on this episode. We talk about Walter Hill's movies in all their aspects, from their politics to his use of music, which is relatively unique in Hollywood, as you'll hear. And we also talk about the process of writing this book and about some other directors' work, including Ridley and Tony Scott, Rob Zombie, Sam Fuller, Michael Mann, and William Friedkin. It's a long conversation, so I'm going to cut this intro short, frankly, and we'll just get right into it.
Hi, Phil. Hey, Mr. Chaw. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank so, you for uh, your interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, I bought the book basically as soon as the, the pre-order was announced. Oh, wow. Um, because the thing is, like, I'm not a huge movie guy. Okay, I should yeah. tell you that up front. I'm not a huge... I Like, even when I was going to theaters, which ended two years ago, I, yeah. was, I was going, like, twice a year, you know? Uh-huh. I watch stuff online, you know, I, right now I'm, I'm subscribed to Netflix and Hulu with HBO Max bundled in, and, you know, basically, like, my Netflix account is for watching violent action trash in in non-english languages like i'm a big fan Uh of like indonesian action movies you know oh man yeah they're Um, doing it right uh, yeah (laughs) you know any any basically like any anything that's like award bait or whatever i have zero interest you know good man so (laughs) but the thing was like when i looked through my blu-ray collection i realized that I own more Walter Hill movies than movies by any other director. Uh, like, I uh, own his first five, and then I uh, own Extreme Prejudice, which I actually had to buy the Japanese Blu-ray of several years ago. Right. Um, uh, and then recently, most recently, I bought uh, Trespass, the Shout Factory Blu-ray of Trespass. Nice. Uh-huh. So... You know, I've got like seven or eight Walter Hill movies, you know, and, and oh, and I have Last Man Standing, which is paired Whoa. up in a duo with The Last Boy Scout. It's one of those two, right. two movie packages. So, yeah, right. which, I, which is another movie that I love. So I love know. that movie. Yeah, that, that, that's helicopter death ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's sort of the platform for this is I bought, I bought the book Sight Unseen, you know, and um, so let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, okay. How long did you have the idea for this book, and how long did you work on it? Well, I, you know, I didn't really have the idea until right before I started on it, which was about seven years ago. And, and what, what what precipitated it was I went to a uh, a, a a screening of, of of Streets of Fire on thirty five millimeters. And, um, you know, I had to kind of be dragged to go. I was not that interested in going. I remembered the movie from when I was a kid. I must have seen it when I was 10 or 11. And, and you know, I, I thought it was good, and, you know, but you think everything's good when you're 10 or 11, right? So I wasn't really um, on fire to see it, so to speak. But, but you know, I, I, I went with a buddy, and I was uh, just sort of blown away. I was transported by it. I, I felt exhilarated by it in a way that I don't often anymore feel exhilarated about movies i felt i think maybe exactly the same way that i felt when i first saw it when i was 10 or 11 and so uh that got me very curious you know what's going on with this movie why is it like this and why has this and the sea of all the other movies uh, that that are kind of similarly pitched or similarly feeling uh, why, why is this one persisted uh i followed it up with a screening of the, the, the warriors under similar circumstances on 35 millimeter with an audience and it was enough. I said, okay, this is there's something going on with this movie that you need to dismiss them, I think. But at the end of the day, there's something that's persistent about them that keeps, you know, it keeps swimming up in my head. It keeps swimming up in popular culture. Um, it's, uh, it, it, they, they asked a lot of questions that I didn't know the answer to. That's what got me interested. And just seeing if there was something that actually pulled all of this together. So 
about seven years ago, I watched all of the movies that I could. Um, I think it was all of the movies that were available at the time uh, in a row by, by, by Walter Hill. I, I didn't watch any of the screenplays yet. I just watched the movies that he directed. And then I reached out um, to uh, Hill himself, and I asked him if he would be interested in talking to me about you know, maybe a book project. I, I didn't know what the book was going to look like initially. You know, I thought maybe it'd be one of these things where, you know, the uh, director sits down with me and we go movie by movie and we go into detail and I, I give a little criticism and he gives a lot of background. Um, but he expressed really quickly that he uh, wasn't interested in that. He, he's not the kind of guy who likes to talk about his, his, his own movies. He's given a couple of long-form interviews in other places, which I think kind of covers it. But he's of the mind that, you know, the more you talk about it, the less interesting it is, especially to him. So um, I was like, okay, well, that gives you kind of a clear idea. And he has been great. You know, he's, he's been there when I had a question here or there to, you know, confirm a fact here and there if I needed it. Um, and, and super supportive and kind. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we kind of made a deal at the beginning that it wasn't, I wasn't going to be talking a lot about his life. I wasn't going to be talking about behind the scenes stuff. You know, I'm not interested in rehashing a lot of that stuff. It's, done better anyway by, by, by other people smarter and more industrious than me. So um, it, it was uh, it was great. It kind of matched up perfectly because I'm more inclined to talk about the substance of something than I am to talk about the making of it. Um, although the making of it sometimes doesn't form the substance. So that goes in there. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I find that I'm the same way. Like right now Ooh. I'm working on a book where the subtitle is The Life and Music of Cecil Taylor. But, you know, I'm obviously, Taylor's dead. I interviewed him once, took a couple of days. You know, we spent two days together when he had a big career retrospective at the Whitney Museum. So we hung out for probably eight to 12 hours cumulatively over two days. Wow. Talked about a lot of stuff. But I am explicitly laying out the rules of the game in the beginning of the book where I say, look, I'm not going to tell you you know, in 1963, Cecil Taylor lived at this address, and this was who right. he was involved in a relationship with, and this was where he, you know, was working because he couldn't make a living as a musician, or blah, blah, blah. You know, right. the the hard, super detailed biographical stuff is not as interesting as deep analysis of the work, because right. the work is what remains. And, you know, so I agree with you 100% that it should be about the the art you know yeah because if yeah. someone devotes their life to their art which he certainly did you know taking tremendous personal sacrifices to make all this music deal with the music don't don't try and you know investigate who he was you know behind the scenes because he didn't want you to know right right and you know i i think the clearest autobiography that you could ever read of Cecil taylor is to look at his amazing body of work right i mean that's he, he said everything he needs to say through his work i mean i think if you listen to the final tongues it's like yeah man i i, I get exactly where you were at this point in your career. you know mm-hmm. I, I could hear it I, I could you know same goes with coltrane right you, you look at giant steps and you're like He's talking about giant steps, not just talking about chord progressions here, right? He's talking about the sea change in his music at this point in his life. He's telling you all that he needs to tell, and I really believe that. I think artists, the good ones, aren't so intentional about that. They're just sort of helpless to tell their stories as they go along. Um, you know, they're, they're I, I think 
think you, you, you can chart with a guy like Walter Hill, for instance, exactly what his influences are, exactly what he's read and what he, he cares about when he's a kid. And, um, his, his dreams are, are made clear. His fantasies are made clear um, by the work that he does. And you don't need to ask him, hey, you know, do you do all these movies about Western heroes because you kind of have a fantasy about restoring moral order when you're, you know, that, 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 that stuff is re, re, reductive, I think, in a way that's not useful when you're talking about artists. And, and I think often, you know, artists, the, the good ones, don't actually know why their stuff works. You know, if you, if you drill down really deep with certain directors, there, there was a director I interviewed early on where, you know, he, he, he said, what you do is very different from what I do. And I'm more interested in hearing what you think of my movies than I am in talking about what my movies are about because I'm probably not seeing what they're actually about. You know, I mean, I'm just making an action movie. Really, what's coming out is this deep expression of pain or this expression of whatever. I mean, I think there's a yeah, there there there, there there's a real zero, zero sum aspect to digging into biography overly uh, when you're talking about art. But again, you know, I would say that. It's important to have a like a framework. It's good to know what the backgrounds of these people are. Sometimes, you know, a little bit. But you know, in terms of just diving deep, I, you know, I'm very much of a mind of like, you know, the art is where the truth is. That's kind of all you need to know. Let's dig into that. Yeah, yeah. Now, you you mention in the afterward at the end of the book that you started with a more thematic approach before switching to the more or less chronological career overview that is the final book. So can you talk a little bit about what that thematic version looked like? Like, how did you break the movies up? What was filed with what? Yeah, you, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, but I'd broken it up in like four or five different clumps. Like I thought, you know, okay, there's like a thematic uh, thing going on with his, his Western, let's do long riders together with, um, I don't know, Geronimo and Wild Bill, and then we'll roll in Deadwood a little bit. You, you see some of that in the final product there. There's pairings. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do some of the films. But before it was like four or five or six movies because, you know, out of the 24 films that he's done, I was thinking, you know, I could break it up into like six chunks, and then that would be a good way for me to organize in my head what was going on. But, you know, I, I, six became four, and then four became two, and then finally I was like, you know, that's okay, this is this is silly. It seems like he's got like five or six themes that run through his movies, all of his movies. Um, but that, 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 that wasn't necessarily clear to me initially, so it was important for me to sort of break it down um, that way, I think. But, you know, finally, the, the last two categories I had broken down were the, the comic book movies and the real movies, the quote-unquote you know, realistic films, where, you know, the, you know and, I, and I broke it down over, over like, if he wanted people to know how to actually punch. That was one kind of movie. And if he wanted people to punch like Dick Tracy, that was the other kind of movie. And those, those are the two movies in his filmography. So those were going to be the two sections of the book. And then, you know, finally I thought, you know, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't really make sense. Why don't I just begin to pair them if I feel like there's two movies that are similar or not in the way that he approaches his main themes that they could pair together. Um, otherwise, I'll leave them individually. And so that's, that, 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 that was the, uh, final form of it but it, it you know it, 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 was, it felt like such a big project to me that i needed to you know it's like eating an elephant i needed to segment it first mm-hmm. before I, I could really tackle the whole thing you know it's just like oh man that's 40 years and you know 50 years almost and, and, and you know um, 
all these movies and I just, uh, how do I begin to make sense of what's going on here? So the first year or two was about almost just about figuring out what the themes were from the beginning to end. And it was during that period, I watched the movie a lot, uh, just over and over again, because it, and then taking notes and then highlighting the notes and then going back and going through it. You know, I don't, I don't want to seem, make it seem like too scholarly, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, I think it ended up being maybe a little scholarly, but I, I just, uh, yeah, it, it was just a process of compartmentalization so that I could get a grasp on the, on the shape of the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and just it, it ended up helping as an outline rather than a final, right, right. final shape. Yeah. I feel like th- when I look at the, the filmography, like no matter what kind of themes or, category, or categories you break it into, you're always going to wind up with a bunch of movies and then Brewster's Millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, right. shit, where do I put this now? You know. Exactly. Yeah, Brewster's <laughs> Millions is really interesting. You know, that was one of the movies I highlighted when I talked to him initially. He, you know, he's super friendly. He's a, he's a real gentleman, you know. He's, um, and, and he, uh, but he said in the middle of this initial conversation, he's like, I was warned about you. You didn't like the Long Riders. I'm like, oh, I don't remember what I wrote about Long Riders. And then he said, and... I'm more curious about what you don't like, because it's easy to say what you do like, but what movies of mine don't you like? And I said, well, didn't like Brewster's Millions, and I didn't like Crossroads very much. And those, and I said, but it was curious to me that those two movies came out at the same time. You know, and he said, well, my dad died, <laughs> was sick and died around that time. And, and immediately I'm like, oh, okay, so there, there goes the book. I just really said something stupid. But it, it, it seemed like he uh, was what's the term you know he, he he was encouraged that i was honest about it i guess even though one, one of those movies crossroads was really personal and the, the other brewsters i grew to really respect i still don't like it i would say i don't think it's a success it's meant to be a comedy i don't think it's a comedy but i think that what it does you know especially if you watch it now post 2016 you realize that it's a story about a guy who is a you know a Democratic anarchist, you know, he's the guy who runs for mayor, and or and and on a platform of, I'm not qualified. I've never been qualified. I have a lot of money. Um, I don't think any of this works. I think you, you should vote none of the above. You know, he's he, he's the guy who tells that. You know, he's the liar that tells the truth. You know, um, he's a, uh, and, and he gets this huge uprising. The the the, the this groundswell of people who are very frustrated by their financial situation. They go to work for him. They get ultimately, I think, by the end of the film, swindled by him because when he is done with his experiment as a keeper of people on the payroll, I think it's pretty clear he doesn't. And, you know, it's clear that, too, that he's only respected because he has the money that he has for a short period of time. But he doesn't. He does end up winning the, the election for a major political role in the United States because he's rich. And he says that, you know, the system is broken. And it's like, that's... To me now, with the benefit of you know uh, uh, all the terrible stuff that's happened to us, uh, kind of profound in, in 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 identifying how easy it is to get a group of people to follow you uh, in, in 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 a culture that really worships the wrong things. And in that sense, it's kind of similar to, to Trespass. You know, it's kind of similar to some of those other movies that are. You know, Trespass is really interesting re- retelling of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where 
money makes people just kind of insane. And, mm-hmm. and it goes across racial lines, it goes across class lines. Money just corrupts you entirely. You know, and I think so many of the tales from the crypt comic that he loves is about that as well. So the, 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 there's a slim connection, but to your larger point, yeah, Brewster's Millions is sort of out there by itself. Um, it, it was Hill's, you know, opportunity to work with uh, Richard Pryor, which he really wanted to do with 48 Hours, but Pryor was uh, off making the, the, the toy instead. I think Pryor chose <laughs> it instead of yeah. 48 Hours, yeah. which is fascinating too. Um, but, you know, Brewster's finds Richard Pryor, like, post-suicide attempt, he's really, he's sober, and he's afraid that he's not funny if he's sober. Um, really kind of a tragic thing, and I think, it, you know, if you watch Brewster's with the idea that it's going to be a comedy, I don't think Hill was ever that, that funny in that way, but um, if you watch it with the mind that it's kind of a sharp social satire with uh, slapstick elements, there's value there. You know, I, I it, 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 it's not it's not the one I pop in you know, just to watch, but uh, yeah, but yeah. The, the, there's some value there. Yeah, I actually I, I saw it in theaters. I've only seen oh, no. I've only seen three Hill movies in theaters, and two of them and two of them were with my dad, um, oh. which were Brewster's really? Millions and oh. Extreme Prejudice. Ooh, we saw both Good. of those in theaters, and oh. and then I saw Undisputed years later. Oh damn! And I don't remember. And I mean, at that point, I was a kid, so I was not, you know, thinking in terms of who directed a movie. So Brewster's Millions was just like a movie we saw, and Extreme Prejudice was just a movie we saw, you know. And (laughs) so, like, and I mean, Extreme Prejudice, like that movie has stayed with me my entire life. Like, I for one for one thing only, which is the scene where. Nick Nolte is hiding behind the Bronco and the guy uh-huh. is walking by on the other side and he shotguns the guy's foot. Oh, yeah. That scene has stayed in my head since I was a teenager. <laughs> like, that was, like, the most shockingly violent thing I had ever seen on the big screen. I was like, holy shit, that guy's foot just exploded, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's really funny because, like, that movie, even now when I watch it on Blu-ray, the people always complain about you know the gunshots in Michael Mann movies being the loudest right. sound in the world, and I think Extreme Prejudice has him beat. And I, th- <laughs> what I think about it as is, I feel like that it's uh, it's because the movie is from 1987. Because in my head, it kind of connects with the huge drums on like a Phil Collins record, you know, uh-huh. that huge uh-huh. 80s drum sound is the same thing you get that huge 80s gun sound in movies yeah the the uh, gated reverb exactly yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so no i mean i i and you know as as a kid even as as an adult i I don't think it's it's a natural conclusion to say those two movies were done by the same guy right i I mean they could not be more different exactly exactly and, 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 you know, the, the real challenge of writing the book was to say, you know, and it could have fizzled at the beginning, I think, of the project. If I watched all these movies and I said, these are just, you know, this guy is just a journeyman director. He just kind of does a gun for hire. You know, I mean, he, he'll just direct anything. It doesn't matter. And there's not really a voice here. And, and so, it, you know, if that were something that I had found, if I, if I was like, you know, whether I was right or not, if that's what I determined in my 
humble but correct opinion that you know there's just not a lot of there there then that, that that would have been it but you know really quite the opposite so it became the challenge of like say going back and saying all right what about the movies that aren't action movies the brewster's millions crossroads you know even supernova what what about these movies do they fit and it are 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 are, are they fitting without me forcing you know the square peg through the round hole with force you know do they fit in a way that actually makes sense and I, I can make a case and feel good about it you know not re- re- reading out but rather you know um, not reading in but rather reading out and so yeah that Bruce Millions was the one that provided a lot of challenge and introspection to say you know what can I talk about this that at the end of the day fits and you know it, it, it's going to be and this is how Brewster's kind of fits with the screenplay in my mind a little bit that at, at the end of the day, it's like if you re, re, reduce men enough, they are venal and driven by the same thing. You, you know, they're 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 driven by acquisition. They're driven by violence. They're driven by uh, you know certain uh, worldview approach to to the world of of, of power mm-hmm. and power structure. And what are men attracted to? And what do they follow? What what does that look like when? You know, uh, command breaks down when the mental relationship is broken. You know, all, all these things that we can begin to talk about with uh, Walter Hill in terms of his fascinations with masculinity do apply to Brewster's Millions. It's not the it's not the key. It's not the drive of it. But uh, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time to keep defending it. I guess, but but to say that the reason I felt like this is a clear clear anomaly in his films, but if I can find things in it that that still speak to a voice in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I would say he actually deviates perhaps furthest from his voice with a, another 48 hours because you know that more than almost anything else his filmography is something that he took for money. I, I think he took for, you know, he wanted to get back on top of the blockbuster uh, uh, chain. Um, right. To, to say, you know, I, I'm going to do this because I've had, you know, I just did Johnny Handsome and nobody went to see it. It's a personal film and he tried really hard. I tried hard before for a blockbuster with Red Heat. Who could who could go wrong with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the year after Predator? Who could go wrong there? And then no one didn't see that either. Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, well, certainly they're going to see another 48 hours. And I think what he encountered, and this is not anything that he said to me, but just from watching the film, what he encountered, I think, when he went back to 48 hours was that Eddie Murphy had become a different creature than he was obviously in 48 hours and that was his first film the studio wanted to drop him um, and he had to fight for him and he had to wait for him to figure out who he was as an actor by another 48 hours you know eddie murphy was like the biggest thing on the planet he was a top top uh earning uh, star in hollywood and he wasn't going to do the things that he did in 48 hours anymore and i think both hill and nolte realized that during the shooting of it so all the way another 48 hours feels like me the two of them watching Eddie Murphy being a jerk and laughing about it. And, uh, you know, literally laughing about it. a lot of scenes where Nolte's just sort of shrugging and watching him and laughing, you know, as Eddie Murphy's doing his thing. And yeah. uh, it's embarrassing. It, it's tough to watch. It's embarrassing for Murphy. And I really think Hill, after that, said, hell with this. I'm, I'm not <laughs> doing this anymore. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm going to make trespass. We've been waiting for a long time. Yes, we've been waiting for a long, long time. We've been waiting for a long time, but we ain't gonna wait no more. We're getting ready to rock and roll. We're gonna one, two, three, four, one, two, three. One, two, three.
here's something interesting which comes directly out of uh, you know, talking about 48 hours and whatnot is something that I expect when I went in, I expected you to make more of this. And it is something that you mentioned, but it's something that really sticks with me when I watch Hill's movies is that he really enjoys putting musicians playing on camera in his movies. Because I can specifically recall them in Hard Times, Southern Comfort. Long Riders, 48 Hours, Extreme Prejudice, obviously Streets of Fire and Crossroads, and also Geronimo. I just, I, I finally watched Geronimo for the first time last night because it's on, okay. it's on Netflix. And so, so there's always musicians on camera in those movies. Yeah. And in 48 Hours, I thought it was very interesting that he used the band The Bus Boys who were this really interesting black and Latin new wave rock band from L.A. Who yeah. They made two albums before appearing in the movie, and they actually got four songs on the soundtrack. They were the only, And the country band in the other scene, in Torchies, is not featured on the soundtrack. Whoever they were, they right. did not get their own song. But the busboys, who played one song on camera, I think, when Murphy goes to the club at the end of the movie... Yeah they got four songs on the album. And so I thought that was very interesting, you know, but man, I wish, uh, I wish I'd talked to you four or five years ago when I was doing that chapter. That's a really great observation. I mean, he loves, um, I think I, 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 I might've cut off your question. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about his, you know, his use of music mm. in that way. Yeah. You know, he loves showing bands play. I think for him, music is the clearest, and cleanest way to set up a time and a culture, um, and 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 you know the story of place you shot four films in New Orleans, you know, which has a really amazing uh, jazz Zydeco uh, culture. He, um, yeah, his dad was a jazz drummer, uh, and, and and he was, uh, you know, he's really into he's really into music. Yeah, to, to your point, I, you know, he. And un unusual, I think, for a lot of filmmakers, to your point again, he does let them play. What's the band in Streets of Fire? I can't remember. The Blasters? The Blasters, yeah. yeah. No, I interviewed Dave Alvin and uh, oh, a couple oh. years ago, yeah, and he, he talked about, you know, being on the on the movie and was like, yeah, man, we were we were all on board, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And, 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 and you know, you, you would want to, as a band, be on board because, you know how much he respects, he'll respect the, the music, mm -hmm. the music culture, and how, you know, it, it ingrained in the characters these bands are. You know, you go to the uh, the, the bar torches in 48 Hours, and there's, you know, again, the uh, Western music and the stripper dressed like a cow, like a cowgirl. And then you go to Torchies, and, and, and you, or, or the, uh, um, yeah, it, I'm sorry, it's going long. I don't remember the but, name but, of the club at the end. Yeah, of I don't the remember movie. it either. Yeah. You know the 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 the, uh, the uh, bar that that Eddie Murphy goes to, and and he lets the band play, and I think you get to know the characters really well. It's, uh, he's like shouting over the band. In fact, when he's calling Nick Dolphy and telling him where he is, mm -hmm. like, yeah, I know you don't know this place. This is where the brothers hang out. You know, so you know <laughs> he's got a real good sense. And then in Crossroads, he's got another bar called Torchies that's directly across the street, um, catty corner from from. from from a competing bar, if you will, and there's a really clear division. You know, the Joe Seneca character says, "You go into that redneck bar, 
I'm going to this bar. This is where I belong. This is where the blues is. And indeed, that's where, uh, you know, lightning gets kind of pushed around a little bit for presuming to know the blues. Um, so yeah, the music in his movies is, it's, it's a key thread that, you know, I didn't feel necessarily qualified to pull, you know, I'm only vaguely qualified enough to write any of this stuff, but, uh, you know, especially about music, I thought like, there's another book in here about Walter Hill's music and his collaborations with, with Roy Cooter, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of legendary. He, even Roy, Roy Cooter's score in, for Blue City, you know, a film that Hill did not direct, but wrote the screenplay for, and I think facilitated as a producer. Um, the score of Blue City is so different from the, the you know, it, the, the, the score that he did right around there, you know, the, the score that he did for Hill right around there. So, um, there's just something to be said about that collaborative process for Hill as well. He's really involved in it. For his new movie, he has a, uh, a young composer uh, for it that has never done one before. He talked a little bit to me about the process of walking him through, you know, the, the things that he wanted for the movie. And, you know, in Dead for a Dollar, there's a scene too where the uh, female lead, um, Rachel, plays uh, a wayfaring stranger, I think it is, on, on a... On a on a piano in the lobby of a, of a hotel, uh, right, right, right before major action set pieces occur. So, mm. yeah, music is a way for him to set the scene and set the mood, and uh, he he does it in a way that's really, you know, di- di- diegetic, but but knowledgeable. You know, I think the uh, the uh, date scene in Red Heat <laughs> is kind of interesting because he plays this like like nineteen sixties jazz standard that's supposedly on the jukebox, but it's like. <laughs> yeah, I don't think in Chicago in 1988 that's one of the tracks on the jukebox. I think rather he's setting the scene for, a, you know, a, a sequence that would be ro- ro- romantic in any other movie that wasn't, you know, uh, played by Jim Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. Something that just occurred to me while we were talking right now is I'm curious what your thoughts are because another guy who does a lot of sort of interrogation of masculinity in his movies and is also deeply involved in, you know, in the music side of things. I'm curious whether it's deliberate or how Hill and Clint Eastwood have managed to avoid each other for their entire careers. <laughs> like they've never worked on a project together, you know, or yeah. had or expressed any affinity for each other's work or anything like that. And I'm curious whether you know whether you know anything about that or have any, you know, thoughts about that or anything. Yeah, you know, something's tickling in my mind. I've, and it's a really good connection that I've not made before. I've not, you know, I haven't thought about that. But yeah, there are similarities certainly about that, especially with Eastwood being a very accomplished uh, pianist, I think, isn't he? But um, he had asked, I think it was for the driver, he had asked for um, Eastwood. And Eastwood didn't want to do it. He, he was doing uh, Dirty Harry. It, could it have been 48 hours? I'm trying to remember. It, it was probably 48 hours. It, the, the, there was some reason that Eastwood didn't want to work on that project or he wanted a role that wasn't the cop because his, his franchise was Dirty Harry. He didn't want to mm. solely that. You know, he didn't want to dilute that. So their paths, I think, almost crossed. And whether or not they had conversations about that, I don't know. You know, I don't know if there was any kind of friction or any kind of whatever, but I will say that um, I, I, <laughs> it would have been cool. But I think, you know, he 
the per, per, I'm just sort of thinking off of my my back foot here, but you know, I I like guys like Nolte in his movies. I like guys that are kind of like you know, and and he, 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 even Arnie in Red Heat plays a character that's more you know the, the the butt of some jokes. He's feminized a little bit almost in that film. I think he likes to play around with notions of masculinity a lot. I mean, working with Mickey Rourke uh, by itself does that. You know, and, and Extreme Prejudice Nolte is really kind of grieving for the last three quarters of the film, and he's uh, cuckolded by his girlfriend. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff. The hero of Crossroads, you know, is an old guy or or young's not. You know, there's um, stuff going on there. You know, I, I think Street, Street, Streets of Fire, he doesn't get the girl. I wonder if Hill's not more interested in masculinity. That that isn't so rigid. That that isn't so uh, old Hollywood as Eastwood tends to be. Mm. You know, I, I you know I I know there are exceptions in Eastwood's filmography too, but even then, I, I think when he's playing at least he's actually winking at the audience. You know, uh, uh, yeah, uh, like uh, you think uh, about uh, a movie yeah, like The Beguiled, where he's supposed exactly. to be the victim, but he's really you know he oh, yeah. makes it seem like he's this seducer lying in wait instead. You yeah, know. he's the snake in the garden, and he gets buried in the garden at the end of the film. But still, he's dangerous. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's dangerous, and you know, and and Unforgiven is this apology for all the violence, right? It, it is spaghetti westerns, except that he's super good at it. Let's not forget. And at the end <laughs> of it, you know, he kills everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and you know, you you look at Last Man Standing, and it's like, wow, you know, there's a lot going on with the John Smith character in that film. I think. He, he's he's attacked, I think, at least twice when he's naked. There's, there's a lot of diminishment of his um, male, the humiliation of them, uh, and a sense of doom about their their, their lives that I think Eastwood doesn't really uh, fit. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. That. Um, I need to watch. But, you know, I need to watch yeah. Last Man Standing again because I was yeah. thinking about it last night after reading the your chapter on it and. I mean, I didn't like it when I watched it, and in yeah. the and be, and when when I thought about why I didn't like it, the the best word that I could find to describe it, and this goes from the color palette to every single character's performance to everything, the the script, the yeah. <laughs> the best word I can describe it with is joyless. Uh, it's a really yeah. joyless movie, like. You know, you, there's nothing to hope for. There's nothing to be achieved. There's, you know, it's, it's, and that's a lot to ask of the viewer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's dour. But, you know, I would say that it's not the same kind of dour as like, like Southern Comfort, for instance. No, see, it Southern is Comfort is a horror movie to me, and it has the thrills Ooh. of a horror movie, and I love it. Got it, yeah. See? Well, <laughs> you know, Last Man Standing is interesting because you share the opinion of almost everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, when it, when it first came out, had the feeling about that film. I think Ebert's review specifically talks about exactly what you're talking about. He talks about, uh, you know, it, it looks like it's it's shot through the dust bowl. It, it's, you know, everybody is 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 out to get everybody else. There's no hero in this. There's, you know, but I but I think it's a kind of it feels like Dark Knight, you know, Christopher Nolan's comic book uh, trilogy for Batman. To me now, I, I think with, you know, the rise of the MCU and the decline of independent cinema, thought, draft, 
around the film, that Last Man Standing takes on a kind of a different feeling for me. It feels like the thrills are when you punch at somebody, they fly through, uh, you know, double doors, 30 feet through the air into the middle of the street. That uh, Right, right. You know, it, 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 it feels like a Dick Tracy comic strip um, to, to me, and it's beautifully shot. It looks like an Edward Hopper painting. Um, no, it's not lazy. It's definitely not right, lazy, right, right, and it's right. definitely not hack work. It's it's really well crafted, but at the same time, like I I find myself watching it and going, all this craft to what end? Basically, <laughs> right. you know what I mean. It's sort of like watching as uh, this is an this is an off kilter comparison, certainly, but it rem- it's yeah. I think of it the same way I think about the movie Hard to Be a God. Where you put all this work into creating this world, and it's like, yeah, but I'm not happy here. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not glad I came. You know. (laughs) Right. Right. It's a good point. It's a good point. You know, the 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 thing about hard to be a god though is that's like three hours more. But last man standing cook, I think it's under ninety minutes even. Um, And you know, that's what I would say that I do like about uh, uh, last man standing, or even even the films of hills that I'm not are not my favorite. They cook. I, I never feel like they take too much of my time, mm-hmm. and they're put together in such a way that they're they're almost half over by the time you realize that it started. You know, it, it's they're, they're they're really meticulously, to your point, really well crafted films. And I wonder if, upon a review of it, you might not find that Last Man Standing is more um, thrilling than initially thought. You know, there, there's some stuff in it that's just. You know, I, I get a lot of pleasure from watching Christopher Walken play a character who's, as a child, burned an orphanage just to watch the other orphans burn. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, there's, there's there's kind of a thrill to that for me. You know, I like that. I I, I like seeing you know, Bruce Willis, I think, in, 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 in roles like this where he's a man of few words and many actions. Of, there's pleasures, I think, to be found in it, but they're not conventional pleasures you might have to be a little bit uh cynical and broken <laughs> to, yeah. to think that it's that's terribly thrilling but it's a good point you know and i think it, it it had more than a little bit to do with this sort of failure and now it's wrote you know wrote, wrote, wrote relegation to the you know uh, bargain bits or attached to another movie like last boy scout um yeah, yeah which is you know i think kind of a shame you know I, I feel like a lot of his movies or some of them anyway were just out of time they 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 if you did Johnny Hanson in 99 instead of 89 I think you would have had a much different response to it you know would it have broken down the box no but there there would have been I think a different if it, if it appeared next to Dark City and the Matrix you would have said okay this is interesting I mean this is another kind of comic booky kind of film we're not used to that right now and uh it, it's a movie talking about issues of identity and these movies are all talking about identity but he did it 10 years earlier in the form of the noir of dirty noir and, uh, right it was you know too 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 late for noir and too early for you know science fiction existentialism so what do we got we got a movie that's uh a few people <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's not a really really well it's not a mistake that he was the only one to make either because Sam Raimi did Darkman and that one shit the bed too. Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. And and we we look back on those and we were like, man, that was great. I wish there was a whole Darkman cinematic universe. You know, I think there were some sequels, <laughs> but it, but but I, I, a 
lot of times I think these, these directors have a vision. I don't think they're prophets, but I think they maybe are ahead of their time a little bit. They, 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 they're really very clearly about something. He's like in 1989, he says, I'm going to make a Tales from the Crypt movie. And that, that was the same year that Tales from the Crypt of the series took off. So it's like, it, it, it wasn't even silly that he thought it could work. Mm-hmm. But um, for whatever reason, it didn't work. It's, you know, you'll, you'll go broke trying to pr- predict, uh, you know, the, the taste of an audience, I guess. But yeah, you know, I, I, even Extreme Prejudice, which I think is, which is my favorite film of his now, but, you know, that, that movie didn't do well. It, 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 did, it did well in other territories, but it didn't do well in the United States. And 1987 was a huge year for action movies in the United States. Did it get buried? Did people, you know, I, I don't really know. But something about it, maybe it was, you know, it seemed too old-fashioned. It seemed too much like a Peckinpah film. People didn't want to watch, you know, but Peckinpah died during the production of Extreme Prejudice. So that was really a shrine to Peckinpah for, for Hill. It was really the way that he, he wanted to grieve his, his mentor. And so, yeah, maybe it was too old-fashioned. But now we look back on it, and with time, you look back and you say, well, I don't really... I'm not really swayed by you know it, it, it opening two months before Predator or whatever. I, I, I'm more swayed by the idea of this great uh, wild bunch ass kind of film appearing in the middle of the 1980s. I had my watch. Yeah, yeah. You uh, your discussion of Alien in the in this book gives and and fittingly gives a lot of the credit to Hill. I mean, you're not dismissive of Ridley Scott exactly, but you kind of suggest that his prequels betray a fundamental misunderstanding of the movie, which I kind of agree with. But as a filmmaker, what's your take? Because I'm a firm believer, just to put it out there, that Tony Scott was very much the more talented brother. That his (laughs) streak in the 2000s, Man on Fire, Domino, Deja Vu, and Unstoppable, those are all fucking incredible movies. And I'm also a big fan of The Last Boy Scout and of The Hunger. But Ridley Scott, to my mind, only has four great movies to his name. The Duelists, Alien, Blade Runner, and The Counselor. The director's cut of The Counselor is fucking brilliant. Yeah. So, like, where do, you know, like, let's let's kind of talk about, you know, Hill versus Ridley and then, you know, the Scott brothers. Yeah, well, the the Scott brothers, I would say, if I could answer the second first, Tony Scott had something to say and Ridley Scott had, had a way to say it like you know I, 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 I think of Ridley Scott like I think of Tim Burton that they really need good collaborators to make good films you know they they, they, they need a Hampton Fancher or a Walter Hill or someone to make you know a great film just like you know Tim Burton needed uh, Stephen Sondheim you know for instance so or, 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 or Daniel Waters. Um, with, without them, they make this sort of good-looking, empty garbage. It, you know, they, they make television commercials, which is essentially what they are. Tony Scott, you can always tell it's one of his movies, because they not only look the way that they look, they move the way that they move. And they, uh, you know, arguably there's a book in Tony Scott's movies, too, a similar book, that sort of pulls out similar conversations about you know, masculinity and revenge and, and, and man on fire and vengeance narratives in Tony Scott's movies. Um, Unstoppable is, 
I, I love train movies. Unstoppable is a fucking masterpiece. And so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you that Tony's better. Um, and The Hunger maybe is my one of my all-time favorite movies. I love The Hunger. Ah. I think it's been unfairly maligned, uh, you know, for, for its ending, but I think the ending makes sense. Anyway, I love The Hunger. It has had a lot to do with me getting into Bauhaus and stuff back when I was a kid. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, I'm with you. And I think Ridley is. Uh, God, I adore Blade Runner. I like all four cuts of it. I, you know, I I love Alien. Of course you do. And I begin, I you begin to credit him. Who was it I was talking to? Somebody I was interviewing was talking about how do you go from um, Alien to 1492? Well, this is an example of a guy that doesn't read any books. Um, and, and I have to agree with that. You know, I wish I had said that. I think that's true. I think uh, Ridley Scott's not a very introspective filmmaker. And when he makes his prequels, he begins to put back in all of the things that Hill and, and, and Kyler took out of the script, um, all of the explanations, all of the uh, you know origin stories, all the things that are cooler without the origin story. I could have gone my whole life without knowing exactly what the space jockey was. You know, I, I could have. I, I wish I had. You mm-hmm. know, and, and you know, even Scott, when he was interviewed at the time of the movie, said, "Oh, it's a neat little picture, but I wish we'd really talked about." Where, where they came from and how they started and we really got into the the dna of it and i realized as i was reading that sort of vintage uh, uh, uh you know r- ridiculous interview that he got to do it with uh, his, his, his alien prequel um to their detriment I think, although they have their champions obviously but yeah i'm with you on that and i think with hill what he really brought to alien was he gave you know, there, there, there's an old thing. Here, here's a weird connection. Um, there, there's an old, old thing about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, about how Ginger Rogers, how, how Fred Astaire gave Ginger Rogers grace and Ginger Rogers gave Fred, Fred Astaire sex appeal. And I think that, you know, there's a certain level of grace that really Scott brings to the production of Alien, but the grit and the grind and the blue-collar interest uh, of Hill is really what drives the success of, you know, maybe, maybe it's in the tension between the two. You know, between this really beautiful looking and constructed film and this really dirty and grimy story about people that want their bonuses and are getting wet in the coolant system and, you know, covered with grime and crawling through these vaginal tunnels. You know, there, there, there's a nice um, fusion between the head and the heart there. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's Hill who brings this, this blue collar idea. It's Hill who makes Ripley a woman. Um, it, it, it's Hill who says, you know, it would be more interesting if a lot of this was driven by sexism, if a lot of their, you know, reluctance to listen to the science officers because she's a woman. Um, there's stuff here, you know. He, he, he's the one that made her a cat woman. Mm-hmm. You know, there, 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 there's stuff that Hill brings to his scripts that, you'll, you you know, he, Hill gets maligned a lot for being not good with women. And I think, you know, that's just because you think only he only makes these these facile action films. I think in reality, these women are extraordinarily powerful. You know, you have Ripley, you have Mercy and the Warriors. Uh, you know, Ellen Aim and Streets of Fire. You know, the, you have these, or the you know the three the, the five women, I guess, in in in, in, in 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 Broken Trail. You have these really extraordinarily strong women characters that shoot through Hill's films. Um, and you know, I I think Alien is a, a, a great marriage between them. I'm, I'm not sure 
you know, Hill, a Hill directed alien would be a very different thing, I think. Mm. But, uh, you know, some, something between the poetry of the visuals and the uh, blue collar poetry, almost the war poetry that Hill brings to it really works. It's interesting, I, and this again is something that literally just popped into my head as you were talking, is because yeah. I was reading something recently by a female music critic talking about oh. Tom Petty. And oh. she said that the reason Tom Petty's songs resonated with so many female fans was because even though they were theoretically classic rock songs and they were about women, you know, and blah, 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 when Tom Petty wrote songs about women, he didn't write about what they looked like. His women, if you read his lyrics, they're always described in terms of what they want and oh. what they need and stuff like that. And he he creates this character, the narrator of the song, who is drawn to these women as personalities. And it's really fascinating because, yeah, a lot of guy, a lot of male lyricists, they write songs about how hot some girl is. And he writes songs about a woman whose dreams are bigger than her boyfriend, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And I like it blew my head open when I read that. And then when when I read your analysis of the female characters in Hills movies, I like that's the same the same mindset. You yeah. know, it was very fascinating. Yeah. Which yeah. leads me to something else, yeah. uh, because I was I'm also interested in talking to you about Rob Zombie, because oh. I read your review of the monsters, and uh -huh. the first line of that review is Rob Zombie only makes movies about families, and he does it with a wife he loves, and I think that that's a really interesting observation, something I've never read in anybody else talking about his stuff, and. Ironically, it might be why most of his movies don't connect for me. I am fundamentally uh -huh. not a family-oriented person, which is why I don't give a shit about the Godfather movies. So uh -huh. the only one of Rob Zombie's movies that I really, really love is Lords of Salem, which is oh, just so yeah. dark and fatalistic. You're watching Sherry Moon Zombie's character slide downhill to her inevitable doom, and there's never right. a chance that she's going to escape. But you're like a much bigger fan than I am. So talk to me about what he does that's interesting to you. Well, I, I, you know, let's start with Lords of Salem. I mean, he, uh, he, he captures that sense of doom and the, the, the feeling of doom that you feel for a friend that you know is fighting. You know, we, 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 we've all had that, right? I have a friend now that I think, you know, is really kind of in a dangerous place. I don't really know what to do for him. And that, that feeling of watching somebody that you love kind of floating away. It's almost like that Pink Floyd lyric, you know, from Comfortably Numb. You're it's distant ship smoke on the horizon, kind of. You know, you, you're, you're like vanishing over the horizon for me a little bit. Um, and, and there's that feeling in Lords of Salem when the uh, boyfriend, who plays Herman Munster in the Munsters, where the, uh, the, 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 the suitor, I would say, not the boyfriend, calls um, the Sherry Moon zombie character from a pier. He's standing in the cold. He's calling from outside and he's calling and saying, hey, uh, I haven't seen you for a while. I'm showing up for work. I'm just checking in on you. Or how, how are you? She's like lying in bed and she's had like images of these demonic satyrs and stuff. And you know that time is short for her and she's just sort of mumbling and saying, oh, I'm okay. Uh, and the feeling in that scene, even talking about it, I just feel this real overwhelming sense of 
Weltschmerz, you know, this feeling of the sadness of the world and how you lose the people that you love. And, you know, it's, that if you are in a love relationship, then it's all inevitably a tragedy because one of us is going to watch the other one die. And so there's <laughs> something that zombie captures about that in terms of family. You know, family is always a tragedy. You know, if everything works out the way it's supposed to work out, you, you, you'll, or, you'll orphan your children at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's sadistic and terrible. And, and you know, what, what makes it worth it? And so, you know, Zombie in like Halloween 2, for instance, he uh, has a scene where the sheriff played by Brad Dwarf comes home to find that his daughter's been killed. And rather than focus on the stalking, you know, which is really kind of abrupt and violent, the focus is, he spends a long time, you know, at least two or three minutes with Dwarf's agony, his spiritual and emotional crying out to the universe holding his daughter's body and looking around and taking in all of the atrocity uh, of you know her last moments um that's i've never shaken that you know for me that's the the quintessence of what it's about i, I think the firefly trilogy that he did the house of a thousand corpses and devil's rejects and then free from hell uh you know See, th- those scene, are all about a family that that's the thing from, right? the scene in Devil's Rejects, where yeah. Sherry Moon Zombie and the rest of them are torturing the family in the hotel room. Yeah. I literally could not watch that. And, like, I've seen plenty of shit in my time. Yep. That scene is so... It's more brutal because... Let me put it to this way. It's it's more brutal than anything Michael Haneke has ever thought of. You right. know? It's just... Right unrelenting and because, Ma- because michael haneke doesn't actually care about his characters mm-hmm. yeah yeah right i mean the, 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 there's at essence sort of an icy intellectualism about michael haneke that that's just not there for zombie zombie is like in it you know with you he's like isn't it terrible uh, isn't it this is horrible and he's sort of like the tarantino in that he cast um you know, sitcom star, the the uh, re- re- replacement for Suzanne Summers and Three Company, mm-hmm. and that's scene, right? Yeah, I can't remember her name. I Priscilla Barnes, but yeah, Priscilla Barnes. Thank you. Yeah, and so you you have kind of a uh, a, a a a subterranean um, connection to her already. You know, I've spent two seasons with you, living in an apartment in San, in San Diego. I know you, um, and now you know somebody's wearing your husband's face. And stuff. And so there's. Yeah, it, it, it's it's emotionally brutal because I think it's it's all about this examination of what happens when, you know, um, what it happens when what's going to happen inevitably does happen. I think that's why Cronenberg's The Fly has always been one of my favorite films because, you know, here it is about it, it's about love, it's about the sort of devotion that you give to another person even as they're falling apart physically and mentally, mm-hmm. becoming something else. Their their bodies uh, literally decomposing and so yeah i think ron zombie does that um and certainly not to every taste but you know you as a, a, a as a fine music mind might appreciate you you probably know actually because you know so much but um though double rejects was based on terry reed's album seed of memory that he listened to that uh seed of memory and he's like oh damn and then he started writing a a a, a, a you know a script that was with these characters that he created and stuff but um, you know, in honor of the vibe of Seed of Memory, and, and you know, Seed of Memory is the song that that took over the closing credits too. But 
he is a yeah, he, you know, Rob Zombie obviously is very steeped in music, like Eastwood, like Hill, <laughs> and and you know, music, the 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 drop needle, but like in Lord of Salem, that kind of grindcore noise music mm-hmm. that that he has for, for the witches, it all plays a major role in setting the theme, setting the character and personality of 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 of, of, of his uh, people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's all in there. I think I ramble too much, but yeah. <laughs> So I was something else that I was a little surprised by, and it's probably just because of my own prejudices as a viewer or preconceptions going in. Was I was I kind of, in a weird way I thought that I might find you drawing a connection between Hill and Sam Fuller in this book because oh. I think they do some very similar things at times in terms of interrogating masculinity depicting mm-hmm. violence without endorsing it, being surprisingly progressive for their time without making a big sort of thumping the table thing about it, although Fuller was much more of a table thumper than Hill, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, am I? what do you think? Am I off base, or is there something to that? No, I think there's a lot to that. I think the approaches were probably a little bit different in my mind, just stylistically. I mean, I think, you know, you, 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 you make a point about the violence being unenhanced, but I think Fuller was more, you know, I think he even called his own style tabloid style um, of doing it. That that's more flat and un, uninflected. I find less poetry in the way that Sam Fuller shoots a movie than I do in Hill. And um, you know, I, I find some of Hill's movies to be genuinely beautiful and exhilarating. And I don't think I do with any of Fuller's films. I I, I really admire Sam Fuller. And I like Sam Fuller a lot. Um, he he has the status he has and wealth he earns and. Um, but I would say that, you know, even though they might share some of the same concerns, the way that they approach them strikes me differently emotionally. And, you know, it could be a personal thing. I could be kind of just, you know, you know, so much of film criticism for me, I have to say, is just personal. It's almost like, like journaling. I, I don't believe there's anything as an objective critic, you know, and I, 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 I've read a few of your pieces and I think, you know, if I could be so bold, you sort of think the same thing. You know, it's it's always going to be informed by the person writing it. That by the end of, you know, by the end of me reading a book about Cecil Taylor, I'll know more about you than I will about Cecil Taylor because you know the the music is expansive and it will affect you in a different way. But you know, the way that it affects you and the things that you pull out of it, things that are germane to you and your experience. But you know, in the course of our conversation, for you to be able to pull out references to, you know, or to want to talk about Rob Zombie or or you know re- refer to um, you know the the blasters and the bus boys it's like that 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 to me is all about still i know more about you now than i do about another 40 hours you know i i, I and i think in in, in 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 writing a book like this over the course of seven years and i've changed a lot you know there's a lot of stuff in there that i wrote seven years ago that i may not um that, that i've had to you know revise before publication mm-hmm. mad rush to change stuff but anyway i i, I feel like you know so much of the way that I respond to movies is, is, is instantly emotional, and it's, it's about a, back, a lot of backwards engineering to either justify or debunk. You know that feeling is too personal, and it's nothing to do with it. You know the only reason you like this movie is because you, you have a cat named Nick Nolte or something. Um, so you know you, you're sort of struggling between those two um, poles as, as a writer and a critic. All, all always, am I being as true to the text as possible? Can I tell a story about myself using the text? as an example, or am I just telling a story about myself? 
right. the picture of that with Disney Room. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for, for me, when I watched him fuller, I'm full of admiration, but I'm full of, like, less exhilaration. Even, like, House of Bamboo or something, you know, the uh, uh, which deals with Asian-American issues, which I'm really kind of invested in. I feel more like a sense of respect than I feel exhilaration for when, like, in Bullet in the Head, Walter Hill, actually cast an Asian-American as, as a masculine action lead who saves Sylvester Stallone's life. Mm -hmm. um, that gives me a visceral response, whereas... It's funny, I was know, just thinking, like, when you said, you know, that his compositions and stuff aren't as beautiful, there was... It's either Crimson Kimono or House of mm -hmm. Bamboo, and I can't remember which is which. It might be Crimson Kimono. There are... It was actually shot in Japan, and there's yes. just some unbelievably beautiful stuff in there. And yeah. it probably is the most visually striking a Fuller movie ever got. You know. Certainly, yeah. yeah. I, 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 you know, I think without question that that that, that it is. You know, and I, I love Shock Quarter. I, 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 you know, taught Shock Quarter. Shock Quarter. I think it's an, an all-time you know masterpiece about you know the, the 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 civil rights moment in the United States. But I wouldn't say that the compositions are beautiful. You know, I wouldn't say that it's a beautiful-looking film or or that it's put together in a way that's that's viscerally exciting. Right, and you know, for, for 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 me, Hill kind of occupies a rare space where he is both viscerally exciting and also sociologically resonant and personally resonant for me. I mean, he, he kind of is a if you draw those three big circles, he kind of occupies the space in the middle, which is unusual. I don't know that a lot of directors have ever been that for me. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that's you know another way to answer your first question is that's kind of why I wanted to write about it, just to say, you know, is this for real? You know, I'm going to invest at least a couple of years, I didn't think seven, but, you know, a couple of years of my life figuring this out. I'm going to watch his movies at the exclusion of all the other movies I need to watch for my job. And um, is, there, is there a there there? And, and it turns out that there really was. You know, I, 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 uh, I, I've been very edified by the journey yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. With this movie. and I'm grateful for that yeah so I guess my last question is kind of an unfair question but I'm going to ask it anyway sure. uh, which is why do you think that Walter Hill doesn't have the cult and the critical cachet that say Michael Mann does why isn't there a criterion edition of the driver or of southern comfort yeah I know I'm with you I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I don't think there would be a Michael Mann without a Walter Hill. I think Michael Mann does things that Hill does. You know, he's a little bit pretty like Ridley Scott, and he's a little bit less nuanced and classically trained um, as Hill. But he, he, he's kind of in the middle space. I think there's a lot of filmmakers that owe uh, their existence, perhaps, even to Walter Hill. You know, Hill is the missing link between Tech and Paw, Bob Aldrich, and, and Howard Hawksies, and Anthony Mann, with you know Michael Mann, and David Fincher, and these guys. You know, um, and so it, it, it's it's a great question. I think Hill's movies are maybe you know Hill might be the director equivalent of like a Tom Hanks or a Cary Grant is a better example. Hill is like a Cary Grant in the sense that no one really appreciated how hard it was to do the things that that Cary Grant did. Um, it was just he did that, and so he's kind of like dismissed as a as a comic actor or or, or a romantic actor. But you know, and occasionally you had guys like Hitchcock who said, you know, 
why don't we make you the worst person ever, Jimmy Stewart? Why don't we make you the worst person ever, Gary Grant? You're an advertising executive. Falcon. And so the, there's people who got it at the time, but most people kind of overlooked his genius. And I think Hill, unfortunately, maybe has fallen into that trap a little bit. And those movies are too entertaining. They're, they're too easy to watch. And so that, you know, you don't necessarily have to grab hold of something. You don't have to justify it in any way. You know, so it's like all the cultists will spend, you know, 80 bucks to buy a limited six disc edition of a, of a B movie that frankly isn't that great, but there's some kind of traction there, uh, personal traction that you can gain. And you go, but he'll, you know, he's always only ever critical of the audience that's assembled to watch him. So he's critical about men of violence. He's critical about the prospects of violence and solving conflict in the world and in individuals' lives. Uh, you know, his men are relegated to the outside. They're, they're bad relationships. They are betrayed by their friends. Um, they make bad choices uh, because of their rage and their sexual jealousy. Um, so if these are the audiences that are assembled to watch him, there's, it's, it's not ultimately all that sexy. Uh, you know, Johnny <laughs> Hanson doesn't have a happy ending. You know, these guys don't have a happy ending. Red Heat, they don't end up together. They, they're separated at the end. There's, you know, Crossroads, he never becomes a blues man. He only beats the devil because he plays Paganini. So there's that. There, there, there's this criticism of the base audience, but there's also, you watch The Warriors and you're not, you're kind of excited. I mean, you watch Shoots of Fire and you want to stand up in the theater and dance and sing along with it. There, there's an exhilaration about his films. I think that kind of mask the, uh, archetypal resonance of this film. Mm -hmm. there, 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 there's a reason the movies are so effective. You know, and e, 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 even a movie that, that, that you don't like, like Last Man Standing, is one of the movies in your library. I, I know it's attached to something else, but there it is, right? So there's something that's sticky, I think, about Hill's movies um, that I, I, I had never examined prior to seven years ago. I never thought about it, you know? But they were so sticky and they were so exciting. Um, that I was like, this is not easy. I mean, I've watched thousands of movies since I first saw Streets of Fire in the time in between. Why is this movie still so exciting? I mean, on the face of it, it's silly, right? I mean, there's nobody over 30 in this town. People act like cowboys. It's silly. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's weird grief. I, I don't know. It's weird. Um, and yet it's exhilarating. The fight's exhilarating. They're fighting with rail, you know, railroad hammers and, and, uh, Willem Dafoe is, 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 is in a rubber, you know, suit. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the image the, that never leaves my head is him in like, oh the God. rubber overalls, right. you know. Yes, yeah. I mean, nobody should pull that off, but there he is. And I mean, the thing, I, re I read this years ago. Somebody said, you know, the that the trick with Willem Dafoe is he does his best work when he doesn't have to pretend to be human. So <laughs> you it. get Streets of Fire, you get Shadow of the Vampire, to a degree yep. you get to live and die in L.A., which I think yeah. is a fantastic character. You know, like anytime well, he doesn't, anytime he can drop the mask and not have to pretend right. to be a human being, he's awesome. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, it, you know, the, the, you know, you 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 bring a preacher, and it's like preacher has a, like stuff that's really hip. You know, he he's got a drug movie. He's got uh, The Exorcist. For God's sake. You know, he, He's really um, with the program, you know. He's, he's I am a I am a big fan of Friedkin's. I uh, my too. my favorites of his are 
uh, well, Sorcerer and To Live and Die oh, in yeah. L.A. And the other one that I love is uh, The Hunted with uh, with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, Benicio Del Toro. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a minimalist friggin' nightmare that movie is. You know? It's amazing. And, and he, he did a, 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 a bug, which I really love, you know, smaller film. But, yeah, man, Sorcerer is all time. But, you know, he's he's a contemporary of Hill. Why is freaking, you know, rare, you know, he made Rampage the, the year Extreme Prejudice, you know. But, you know, why does he get the sort of, like, cult attention and, and veneration that Hill doesn't popularly? And I think a lot of that has to do with Hill is out of time. He's making Man Anthony Mansell stuff, and, um, Hawks film. And, 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 and I, I... It also helps, though, that I think it also helps that Friedkin is willing to sit in front of a camera and say yes. completely bonkers shit, which, you know, yes. Walter Hill is yes. not. <laughs> yeah. How, have you seen his interviews with uh, Nicholas Ruffin? No, no, I haven't, but okay, I've heard well, I've heard about them, yeah. Man, it's worth looking up, because I think at one, one point Nicholas Ruffin talks about Neon Demon as being a masterpiece or something, and Friedkin's like, what? Somebody called the doctor. There's a madman in here. What? What did you say that was? Yeah, it was, it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, he doesn't have that personality. He, you know, he's like, he's the opposite of a self uh, self promoter. Um, you know, he's not a personality in that way. And uh, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons. There, there's a lot of reasons I think that you could point to. But at the end of the day, it feels like people who know movies, like that are in the industry making those movies, people like Edgar Wright, for instance, he's the most prominent, I think, with the new of newer directors who adores Walter Hill. Um, you know, they're they're, they're John Woo adores Walter Hill. Uh, there's like um, a cult of Walter Hill there that that's small and but it, it seems to be growing. You know, there there are a lot of HD and special box sets. You know, Imprint from Australia is releasing a box set of Walter Hill films. You know, I was able to do a few commentaries on that for them. And, um, when it, is it, that coming? Because I bought their box of the Warriors just uh -huh. to get uh -huh. the the non comic the book cut. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, I, I hope soon. I thought before the end of the year, it looks like it's going to be probably key one the next year now. But, but I, you know, when I first started writing the book, half of the movies weren't available on Blu-ray. You know, like you, you have Extreme Prejudice in the Japanese, in the Japanese Blu-ray. Yeah, it's like not until very recently. I think it came out in the U.S. in May of this year. Right. Yeah. Which year. is ridiculous. Right around Mother's Day. Isn't it? <laughs> Extreme Prejudice is so good. Look at the cast in Extreme Prejudice. How could that movie have not gotten a, a you know a, a next gen release in the United States until this year, twenty twenty two? That um, it's funny because I was going to bring that up. The 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 when we were talking about Fuller and the sort of social issues yeah. stuff, the dialogue between William Forsyth and I don't remember the black actor's name in the welfare office when they're trying to get arrested is like. I mean, William Forsyth is not that guy. That is just an unbelievably brave, you know, piece of acting to get out there and say that shit in front of a camera, you know? It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it, is it Dan Tullis, uh, the, the black character? I don't remember. But yeah, it's unbelievable the places that that movie goes with its, with, with its racial and its sexual politics. Yeah. You know, I... I, you know, I and they did that a little bit in the Warriors as well. It's like Hill was going these places 
since the beginning. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, it, it, it wasn't from any kind of progressive ideology. I think Hill was just presenting the things as they were with or without any kind of apology for it. It's like, you know, if you really want to make a friend, you know, you call somebody the F word or you, 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 you tease them about being black or Chinese or something. And if you really want to make an enemy, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to build a lifetime bond, you do that. Um, and if, if you want to make a lifetime enemy, you do that. And the uh, delicate political poetry of manhood, uh, it, 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 that's what he's about. That's what he's, he's diagramming here is, uh, man, men are just all, when they love each other, they want to kill each other. When they kill each other, they love each other. And there's just something really broken about that. <laughs> um, here's 24 movies about that. Yeah, it's, it's a very small C conservative worldview in a it sense, is. you know, like a, like conservative in the Schopenhauer sort of sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you use that term because, you know, when we first uh, were, were chatting, he's like, I can tell that you're, you're, a, you're a man of the left. I myself am a man of the right. And I think about that a lot. It's like, you know, he's not talking about MAGA. He's talking about some sort of conservative thing. You know, that there, there's a real, uh, yeah, traditionalist element about Hill that he is nonetheless constantly like interrogating. I mean, he's, he, he's critical of himself and he's critical of the, of the wake uh, that men leave in the world behind them. 